Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Hey, this is Adam from the CRE Podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded a while ago. So it's a little bit dated. It's one of the conferences in 2023. It was released in video format at the time for anybody that wanted to watch Aaron and I speak in person. But this, of course, will be the, you know, the podcast platform. So we are going to release all the content now. It is good stuff. Some of the references might not jibe contextually with the current market. Keep that in mind when you're listening to it. And I guess the other big takeaway message is for 2024, we've invested into a podcast producer and you're going to see episodes that are released very shortly after recording and you'll probably see a little more social media going on. So look forward to it. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron, of course, with Adam Powadik. Kind of a fun episode today, recording here live in front of a studio audience at the offices of First National at 16 York. We've got a full room here in our training room because it's a hot topic. Our guest is a gentleman, repeat guest, Jeffrey Charles, who is the president founder of Cavell Risk Inc. The topic today is really what's transpiring in the insurance market. What's going on with uh, property insurance? where we're going, what's happened, and what we expect in the next sort of 12 to 18 months. We've kind of titled it the state of the insurance market. So it's a big topic, but we'll try to kind of meander through. Jeff, thanks for joining. Thanks, uh, Aaron, for having me. It's nice to be back. You know, since you've last been here, there's been a lot of change in your life. So before we jump into sort of the nitty gritty of insurance, maybe just talk through the transition. We always like this question here because it's, you know, it's a big jump. A lot of us in commercial real estate always talk about going out on our own and start our own company and, and vast majority of us never do. You've done it. So maybe just explain one, the precipice or the motivation to actually do it the worst moment ha, as you're going through that experience? Because I'm sure there were there were some, you know, oh no, why did I do this moments? And then of course, how'd you end up with Cavell and and the, the, the first sort of a couple months? The transition was easy. I think I'd reached a point where I had seen enough of client neglect that uh, it was forming in my mind that we needed to do something about it. I think taking time off and stepping away was what really crystallized it and allowed me to spend, you know, the proper reflections on what a customer experience should feel like and what transparency actually meant. And I reached the point too, where I realized that it couldn't have been done without partners and people that I trusted working with and believed that, you know, we shared common values in this respect. And so it became really easy once I was able to have the conversation with partners about doing this. And that was for sure and has been the best part is doing this with partners. The worst part and the worst process was, you know, kind of standing at the front door of school with the two kids and then the phone's buzzing in your pocket and you have to be, you literally have to be in two places at once. Uh, and you're kind of given those Sophie choice moments uh, with your kids and your work and you always choose your kids. And so that has been, I think the biggest adjustment. And I have a ton of respect for all the, my job as a dad is really easy for all the moms that are doing this. And I have partners who are moms. We have a ton of time and respect for that balance, man, it's crazy. And then the name Caval comes from two things. There's a double and really a triple entendre. You have to get to know us to learn the triple, but the double is there's a, a mountain range in Jasper National Park. And in the mountain range, the most prominent peak is called Mount Edith Caval. Jasper is home to one of uh, our partners. Uh, they have a family home there and have done so inside the park for a number of years, almost 50 years. 
and this home looks right at the peak. And when we were kind of having conversations about doing this together, we said, you know, what are we going to call this thing? And the peak to us was like, man, every client we're talked to has a business plan that looks like they're trying to go up a peak and building a business is a lot like summiting a mountain. When you look at the analogy, we were like, wow, this is great. And it was beautiful and and it was kind of wrapped up in it. And so we went and actually we're like, let's go check this mountain out. And it was called Mount Edith Caval. And when we started to read, read about Edith, we were pretty settled uh, that Edith wasn't going to be the name, but that Caval could be she was a World War One nurse that was notorious for helping uh, soldiers from both sides. And that kind of resonated to us in our role as broker is that in order for deals to work long term, you have to you have to manage both sides of the transaction. And we also view a lot of our work like nursing, like we have to diagnose before we prescribe. There's too many people selling insurance products and just, you know, hey, you need to buy cyber and you need to have this thing. And we're like, no, maybe we should diagnose what's going on and understand how they got here first before we start prescribing what should happen. So the nursing vocation kind of fit with us. It, it is worth mentioning, this is a second appearance, which you did reference. Jeff's last appearance was a uh, not quite as fancy a title and a, a different company. So we'll assume people listened to the last episode. Maybe you want to jump in those. You've had a big shift in your uh, in your career. Yeah, thanks uh, for bringing that up, Adam. We, through the course of the last year, a lot of change, but recently founded Cabell with, with some partners. We thought that the client base that we were serving uh, deserved more attention and more focus and frankly, more service, uh, particularly given some of the things that you know, we're anticipating uh, evolving with insurance over the coming periods. And, and we think that there are clients deserving of more attention and a better experience. And we thought the best way to do that was to build it from the ground up. So that's what we did. So it was an interesting summer kind of observing the insurance world from the sidelines. And it was actually a really healthy exercise to kind of really dive into the news and phone people without purpose to really just have dialogue and, and scuttlebutt, figure out what's going on from their perspective. And you can hear some unfiltered commentary when you don't have that, you know, that lens of purpose to it, which seems counterintuitive, but it was really informative. And a lot happened last year. Are we going to get unfiltered commentary today? If you'd like it, sure. We would, yes. Let's just start by looking backwards. We'd set the set the table. We were in a hardening insurance market, which feels like forever now. Like I, I, the language Does of- it still feel hard? Well, I don't even, you tell me, we're going to find out, I guess. But I mean, we started to talk about it on this podcast with guests about this sort of quote unquote hardening market five years ago, right? Like it's when it really, I mean, I'll use apartment numbers, but property insurance for the most part was fairly stable, right? Like it was a fairly consistent expense, regardless of what asset class you knew, you know, what you're going to get. It was a pretty liquid market for lack of a better term. There was availability of insurance was fairly red, readily available. You just kind of go and call your broker, call multiple brokers, get your insurance. And get everything you want on it too. And get, and get everything you want. And it, you just knew what it was and you didn't have to worry about it. It was last thought, right? You were worried about everything else, about operating your building. 2016, 17, I mean, pick a time. At some point, the market started to harden as a result of, you know, major, you know, catastrophic events around the world, meaning forest fires, hurricanes, whatever. I mean, you you tell me. That seemed to occur, and it seemed to have not stopped. I think there was maybe a flattening, but it, it, it seems to have just continued without without rest. Is that fair? Yeah, it is fair. I think one of the things we'd ask is like, what do you think happened? And we ask this question a lot with clients, like, what, what have you been told happened? What do you think is going on? And if you look at sort of the trend of losses, even Swiss Re, I think as early as this week reported that they're expecting $100 billion of 
losses in North America from cat events. That's $100 billion. That's the fourth year. You got to have a lot of premium to make up for losses like that and, and have continued losses like that. And so if you go all the way back in time, just to refresh, you go to 2008 when the financial markets started to teeter and you had institutional and sovereign capital searching for yield because the fixed income markets were not producing what they needed and the equity markets were volatile. You saw these allocations of capital go to real estate and fixed assets or alternative assets. And one of the classes of alternative investment is insurance. And and you saw a whole bunch of capital pile into insurance because it provided yield that was uncorrelated to markets. And so from 2008 to 2016, 17, around the time you've identified, you had a surplus of capital in the market because the institutions were receiving return uh, that was reasonable and meaningful relative to the return available in fixed income or the risk-free return in those investments. And so they'd be willing to bet outsized baskets of capital in order to obtain that return until 2017 when you have Harvey, Irma, and Maria all hit the Florida panhandle and coast in the Houston area and you have uh, the greatest loss event in recorded history of 140 plus billion dollars in losses that year. And every bit of capital that had come in there got the opportunity to go, do I do this again? And then if you look at the weather patterns and the events that are taking place in that same frequency of time, and you look at what's happened from 2017 to today, you know, how many people in the room would actually tell you that the frequency and severity of the storms that we're seeing, reading, hearing about, and you eliminate the persuasion of social media as a factor in in your visibility to this, but just talk about it. For the first time ever, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, the FT, everybody is writing about what's going on with natural catastrophes and how it's impacting the insurance market. That's last year. That wasn't 2017. So from my perspective, we are at the early stages of a perpetual hard market. If you think about it, and I ask you guys or everybody in this room, let's start an insurance company tomorrow. How do you recapitalize? Well, that's what I want to ask specifically. So premiums are up 3x over the last however many years. Is that to preserve the margins that made it so desirable in 2008, 9, 10? Still playing catch up. I think we're still playing catch up. Can you catch up? I think that's the nexus of the problem. Uh, It's the reason we built Cavell is because we think that there are, there's an outsized buyer in the market in the form of commercial real estate needing to consume insurance capital and not on a long-term perspective, this may seem alarmist and I don't, I want to temper it. We're not, this isn't an alarmist message, but think about it. How many groups of capital will continue to be in a position to tell their shareholders or their stakeholders, we continue to bet against hurricanes and we're losing. We continue to bet that the fire will not affect these assets and we lose. Like that has an end game to it. And so capital scarcity is really what we're preparing for and thinking about in our business. And are organizations prepared to deal with a marketplace where capital scarcity is a reality? And you're starting to see this in the US when insurers pull out of the market and say, we're no longer insuring homes in California for earthquake, or we're no longer insuring homes in Florida for, for hurricanes. Like this is real. There's no one betting on that. And there's no one willing to do that because at any return, it's not feasible. And so how far does that conflagration go before it starts to really impact certain groups? And then we start to talk about valuations. Like if you can't insure an asset, what's it worth? 
Well, let's go there. Hold on. Before we go down that road, I don't know if this is related or not. I think it is, but I, it always goes well over my head. How does the reinsurance market impact what we're talking about? Yeah, you, you mentioned Swiss Re already. As we probably should uh, clarify what that is. Every time. I, they're like the seventh person that's tried to explain it to me, and I never, I never truly grasp it. It's really simple. Reinsurance is insurance for insurers. And it's the easiest way to think about it. It still makes no sense to me. So think about it. If you bet that Adam is not going to crash his car, and you bet $100 on it, and you go, ooh, I don't like this bet. You call me up and you're like, hey, JC, I bet 100 bucks on uh, Adam crashing his car. Can I lay off 50 bucks to you? And I go, yeah, and I charge you a small amount, but then I share that risk with you. And so when Adam does crash his car, I'm in for half the risk. And ideally, you've made a spread at the cost that you've laid that off to me versus the cost that you've charged Adam for that bet. Make sense? So if you aggregate that out, the reinsurers take the largest brunt of these material losses and are often the dog, not the tail wagging the dog. These are the biggest balance sheets and they get to they get to call on what's right. And so if you look at how that impacts the Canadian market, because lots of you may be wondering, well, okay, events in Florida, how does that impact my multifamily asset here in Toronto? Or how does that impact wood frame building in Calgary or, or Vancouver? You have to look at the interconnectedness of the capital markets of insurance and the global capital markets of insurance. When the reinsurers who are Swiss-based or UK-based or German-based uh, or Bermuda-based start to make decisions around the exposure that they can tolerate and cannot tolerate, and then they attach price to it, you look at the sub-markets like Canada, where we've typically bought a fair bit of reinsurance because most of the operating insurance companies in Canada are owned by foreign parents in the UK or in the US. And so they're branches and they're tied into larger reinsurance treaties. And so this branch office, rather than exposing the balance sheet of those insurance companies to outsized loss in this market, tend to consume reinsurance and at meaningful volumes. And so when the reinsurers tell the Canadian market, you can't get what you got last year, just the same way that your clients or our clients are hearing this message, the insurer is hearing that message. So the insurer's deductible is up two times, three times, four times, and the amount that they can actually lay off into the reinsurance market goes away. So now it means the bet that they make here is even more important. So when they face wildfires like we have, and I think the number so far is north of a billion dollars accumulated from wildfire loss, insured wildfire loss in Canada alone this year, that number accelerates really quickly. And when we think about it, it's like, okay, they're not laying that bet off anymore. That's 100% or that's 78. So there, and there's the premium, premium inflation you're seeing. You have to, you have to charge it, right? I think that's what's happening. And I think, I also think that without typically in these market cycles, you know, you used to joke that you lose money for 10 years, make it all back in two years, and that's the insurance cycle. So you're soft for a really long time when everybody's coming in and then all the losses occur and everyone that was there goes, ah, we lost all our money. So then the price ramps up because a whole bunch of people pull out of the market. Now you actually have to think about that money not coming back in or not coming back in in the same volume that it used to. Are we, are we at a stage where they should be coming back in and are not? Is that where we are in the cycle? Yes. You're starting to see profitability return to the major reinsurers and to some of the primary insurers. So the major reinsurance renewals are Jan 1, April 1, July 1. Uh, Jan 1 seemingly looks orderly. Last year was disastrous. Last year was really bad. And so this is going to come down now to doing some math on, you know, what was the total accumulation of loss in the calendar year in Canada and the local branches are going to have to adjust and, and deal with those losses. You have to bear in mind that Canada is also delayed 
the real decision making around insurance balance sheets tends to come from the US or the UK and we tend to be 6 to 12 or 18 months behind some of those decisions and if you look at what's happened with insurance prices in the US in the first second and third quarter of this year I can tell you they've all been going in one direction and it's up now we've seen a number of Canadian renewals this year flattish or modestly up and there seems to be a bit of a pause right now on Canadian renewals the only real explanation I have for that at the moment is this involvement of Lloyd's. Lloyd's capital moves really quickly in to fill gaps in the market and take market share. And that seemingly is an opportunity where someone's goal isn't necessarily about driving profitability, but actually gathering market share. And while the whole market's trying to manage profitability, you have some capital kind of affecting this by taking some market share. I, I don't know whether that's permanent. Um, and if I was betting, I would tell everybody you should, you should continue to budget for an increased cost. And I think that that, you know, the role of the broker today is now about helping you structure and mitigate so that you've got defensibility and durability to, mi to minimize volatility. What we all saw was a ton of volatility, right? Let me try to wrap my head around this. So you're talking about insurance companies getting reinsurance renewals in aggregate and what they're paying on an increase. Is that what you're talking about when you're talking about renewals? And that delays because as you said the insurance rolls every month right like there's a monthly every insurance policies that you have to your property owners is annual and so they're looking at that as it rolls and it's the the trickle down is that you're doing this annual roll based on what you have to get your premiums on the reinsurance that derives what what premiums you pay on the on your property insurance and that takes time to filter through your book on a monthly basis correct so does the calculation on the accumulation of losses. Where are we on the loss book? And not all losses are immediately determinable. Right, because they're coming in as, as they're being claimed. But wouldn't demand be relatively inelastic and in that finance all hinges on it? Is there no pricing that can just respond more in real time to capture those losses? We love the idea that there, you know, there's no such thing as a bad risk, just a bad price. That seemingly is the case for many right now is that in certain segments or pockets, the risk has gotten to such a point where it's like, there's no bid. Well, I heard at one point that, and, and out of this might've been rumors that there was risk of an entire just halt of insurance markets because the reinsurers were just pulling out. There's fear that there would be no buyer at the reinsurance level. And now you're saying, you're saying Lloyd's is coming back in, they're being opportunistic. So that might be a misguiding price level because they're, they're not really looking at it from a risk-based perspective. You're nailing my, our primary concern at Cavell. So short term, there's going to be some opportunistic capital that might be providing supply that stabilizes price. Reinsurance supply. Reinsurance and even primary insurance. You could get some primary insurers going, we can take market share here because these guys are like, they're spooked for this risk. We'll take it. I think that's super short term. And when you're, when you're dealing with financing on real assets with longer duration, you need to think about volatility and durability. We don't like the idea of our customers having cost spikes in the middle of a financing arrangement. We don't like that either. No, you don't. You definitely don't. And so we think way more attention needs to put. The other part of this is is systemic in that the whole distribution of insurance, in our opinion, is, is also gotten to a point where the intermediary is too big and they're not doing their job the way that they could or should be to serve the client and the capital. Who's the intermediary? What do you mean? Our competitive landscape. I'm an intermediary. Like the brokers. Yeah. We don't think that there's enough. Is that a dirty word in your market? No, I don't think so. I think the issue with commercial real estate for their insurance consumption 
is that for a long time, they viewed this as a cost on their income statement and it's an input to the NOI of the asset. And so it's commoditized. And then the insurance buying gets delegated into a, a division of the business, which is cost contained because their performance is based on EBITDA performance. So no one's really actually having the conversation around risk anymore. Everyone's having the conversation around what is the price of insurance? And that part is where our, like, we're waking up going like, whoa, we meet some organizations and the property management team has no idea what's going on with development, let alone how finance is thinking about risk. And so the conversation's broken. And then think about taking that picture to a marketplace. They're going to get arbitraged by that market all day long when the market starts to ask questions around, well, what's the pipeline? Who Who's buying? Who's in the room? We've kind of flipped that upside down in our business. We think of insurance as balance sheet capital. We think of it like it's debt or equity. And when you start to see how organizations behave when they're dealing with their balance sheet, it's completely different than when they're trying to manage costs on their income statement. When someone's raising debt, and you guys would know this, the participation and the story and the conversation that happens from management, from board, from cross-divisional functions so that you have comfort on how use of proceeds is actually going to go, it can augment your terms. It can augment your deal. It's really important. We would garner, most people we meet can't tell us who their primary insurer is, let alone what story is being told to them. That is broken. That's why we built our business. We're fixing that problem. We're fixing that problem in the face of a capital markets issue that we think is systemic and going in one direction long-term. Short-term, there's things that we can be done to mitigate rising costs, structure, conversation, these types of things. But long-term, you tell me, are, are weather events that affect physical assets going to increase in severity and frequency or decrease? Based on everything we understand, it's going in one direction. And so therefore, if your capital pools that bet against those outcomes we also think that that is going in one direction and right at the nexus of that is where our buyer lives and we need to solve those problems. When dealing with your clients, if you had, well, I was a room full of financiers, so I got asked the question, where you could not obtain an assurance that was satisfactory to a lender where it actually killed a deal, where that was the end of a, you know, a purchase process or a refinance. Yes, and rightly so. Rightly, rightly so on whose side? I mean, the, the, the lender was right to uh, pull out? I've seen that and we've seen the lender be Purchasers walk. Yeah. And we've seen lenders not getting great advice either, right? Where it's like, here's the insurance requirements. They make no sense. Well, we regularly, two days before funding and we get the, oh, I can't get flood insurance. Our question is, why Why is this being addressed two days before? Good question. Do we ask that question also? That's the intermediary, frankly. So everything needs to start earlier. The conversation isn't prioritized. That's That's kind of this point. When it's an income statement item and it's like this tick box on the closing agenda, it's a total disregard for the capital. Think of it like you're a bunch of financiers. So are the insurers, right? Someone's got a half a billion dollars up to protect your assets. And by the way, pay you the lender in the event of loss. And we couldn't pick them out of the room. There's no relationships. In our opinion, that's totally broken. How often do you talk to your clients about five-year expense, like what this insurance is going to cost over the five-year period? Regularly. How many borrowers don't want to talk about it like that? Like it's just this year. I think they're struggling to understand and accept the realities of the cost of risk. And there's real conversations that need to be had. Like we also run across other organizations where, you know, we look at their structure, their insurance structure, and the deductibles are like thousand bucks. It's like, what are you doing with this deductible? It makes no sense. You haven't had a loss in 15 years and you're trading hundreds of thousands of dollars with this insurer at this, like, why? That's just the intermediary giving them bad advice. 
Yeah, I think in lots of cases that's the case, but I also, we need to help clients and frankly, we view you guys as clients too. We need to help everybody understand what's going on in this marketplace, give the transparency that's needed so that you can engage with it and frankly, introduce you to the people that are making decisions on how they price risk and what's going on and how that affects you. And there's other circumstances where we'll see, you know, a lender document requiring full limits of Quake on a BC office asset. And we go, but this is like, this is unrealistic relative to what's available in the market. One, two, the cost of doing this and the way that you're demanding it is punitive and, and imputable for the, the, like your deal won't happen. So you can't finance this under this structure, but we don't think there's enough positive tension coming in your direction either to help you understand what the issue is. It's just this like mess of email being like, I don't have the coverage. No one explaining why we can't get it or what the issue well, is. Well, often we, the question is, is it true that they can't get it or they just don't want to pay for it? Could be both. Well, that's usually, it comes back. We're waiting for the answer back to that. A lot a lot of times it is just don't want to pay for the They just they don't want to pay for it. They've gotten sticker shock because they expect it to be a commodity and all of a sudden it's tripled in price from what they expect. And well, they'll just take that off. That's expensive. I don't want that. What do you guys do? Well, it depends on the client. And that makes the point right there, right? Like that makes that makes the, the entire point about how you manage that conversation, the transparency is critical. Yeah, how, how are we sharing that risk? Well, that's exactly it. Because it's, they're just downloading the that flood, let's say it's flood insurance. They're downloading the flood insurance risk to me or, or to themselves, I guess, in theory, right? And do we are we comfortable? Is there a world where you would pay for that? Well, no, of course not. So how do you come to agreement? Well, if they have the ability, we think, to cover it off. Again, it depends on the client, right? The really strong borrowers, I think you, you kind of, you believe that, you know, they're... And that diligent, you've done diligence, you probably have track record, you've got evidence that these guys are not, like, they're going to mitigate, they'll fund CapEx to mitigate this loss. That could be a deductible conversation. There could be really high deductibles, and frankly, I think the market forces higher deductibles. The, fir the first place the, the market goes, the insurers go, well, we understand that premium is a problem, so guess what? We'll just double the deductibles, which is interesting because it manages known cost but it actually compounds unknown cost, which could occur. And that's the part where- Well, we're not really happy with that result either, quite frankly. I was just thinking about that in my head. <laughs> Think then about what insight do you have and does everybody have about what mitigating activity is taking place? That's why we get super alarmed when you meet the front line of a client and it's like, whoa, you're like frontline people don't know what to do with these circumstances. How are they being advised on that? What's the quality of that advice that they're getting? Who's responsible for helping deliver that? And this weird little cycle of like, oh, that's an insurance thing that goes over here rather than this is a risk management thing. And this is an asset. If, if we had everybody in the world that owns and operates and develops commercial real estate, thinking about insurance as an asset that they have and asking what, what's the quality of this asset? Does it need some trimming? Does it need some investment? Does it need some time? What's the current cost looking like relative to the value and quality of that asset? The whole conversation shifts. And then we don't run into these. We don't, we can't even define our appetite around flood risk. And what we think is, is that the clients are trying to, they're in a really tricky world right now. It's really hard to buy commercial real estate. It's really hard to sell commercial real estate right now. And it's really hard to operate for those that have been opportunistic or advantageous in certain circumstances. Like we get, we get that. And so 
this part of the conversation being introduced at this time is like stressful. We hear that when there's, you know, further cost implications to these line items. So they, one more thing. And so we're also meeting a bunch of frustrated people that as soon as they recognize like, yeah, you should go and talk to your insurer and have a relationship with them the same way that you do with your lender or the same way that you do with your LPs or the same way that you do with your unit holders, depending on what structure you're in, you should do that. We think that that's a good idea. Yeah. The good news is that there's, there are solutions out there. I think if you look just the way that you guys get creative to finance things, like your clients are stressed, you've got traditional products, you've got access to traditional products. And a lot of those might not stick in today's environment. So there's probably been a fair bit of conversation around innovation and creativity on what can we structure that actually solves the problem for them and allows us to move our capital so that we all get return and we feel safe about how we've deployed that capital so that we're not doing nothing or stagnating or worse going backwards. So we think the same opportunity exists both short-term and long-term relates to structuring. I won't give all of that away here, but we think that a lot of the structures people are in reflect the world of 2009, 10, 11, 12, where you had abundant supply. They don't reflect a tightening or restricting supply market. And so we think a lot of folks are continuing to buy on a renewal because this commodity just keeps happening. Press the button, renew. We think there are, you know, activities. We sound a little bit like a, a voice on the margin right now, but we know that all voices on the margin eventually move to the middle or end up in the middle at some point. And we think that, you know, through structuring, there's opportunity. And then quite frankly, we think there's a great opportunity right now while there's less activity transactionally in our in the real estate space, uh, and there's inward focus on trimming effectiveness, efficiency, opportunity within existing portfolios, this is an awesome time to revisit, you know, your behaviors to mitigate risk. And there's a lot of help that the insurance community has around mitigating and preventing losses. If we can get losses to stabilize, the attritional ones, the catastrophic ones are hard to manage. We can't necessarily manage the impact and fallout from wildfire. We can do things to prevent, but if it happens, it's happening on a basis. I would argue there's far, there's still far too much water damage that happens or fire and construction or activities around development or, or just day-to-day -day operation that are producing losses that if we worked collectively to educate and mitigate, minimize attritional losses to improve the profitability for the insurer today, you're going to start, that is the exercise and activity we need to start to deploy to create the short-term softening and soft pieces. We've had bits and pieces of this conversation before in other, other episodes, and it's really the internet of things, and it's a whole other side of the business, side of the industry, but is the in insurance industry open to those types of things, like smart buildings that have monitors of pipes and smoke alarms, and it can prevent a lot of these, you know, like you said, the the the, the small losses. And I've heard, yeah, and I've, and I've heard that clients say, yeah, I know I'd love to get a discount on my insurance for all these things that my building does to prevent loss, but the insurance companies just can't have it built in their model. Their models don't account for, I'm not going to have any water damage because I've got all these smart monitoring systems, but I don't get any benefit anyway. It's double-edged. So yeah, I was very close for a period of time to a, a water mitigation solution and spent a lot of time with insurers trying to socialize the efficacy of these systems to a response that was frustrating to say the least. Underwriters are cynics and they have to be, they're paid to be. They need proof and evidence over a period of time that it's there. I don't think we've seen the deployment of these solutions and systems long enough to actually say, that product for sure prevents water damage. You show me five years of track record of that system being used widely, 
and the corresponding losses that resulted from same, then I'll start to talk to you. But the other issue is, is that that's a technical pricing of risk. You have a capital markets function. There's two ways when you look at risk. It's the technical risk. What's it made of? Where is it located? What's it next to? What's the proximity and likelihood of loss? Given those factors, there's a technical price for that risk. If it's made of wood versus made of concrete, if it's built in 1960 versus built in 2010, that's a technical price. The technical price can be overridden by the cost of capital. And right now the cost of capital is rising, which is this capital market function. So it doesn't matter if you've got really great technology built into your system. The insurer at some point is also going to say to you, you have to have it. Not it's nice to have, and here's a discount. It's like, you need to have this. You can't have the insurance without it. There's no silver bullet. There isn't. And we saw it in the personal lines market. Like how many people here had at one point in their time, although I may be aging myself with the statement, had a discount because you had an alarm system at your house, you used to get a discount on your premiums. Now you can't get the premium without the alarm system. So I think there's a little bit of this. A carrot versus stick uh, structure, yeah. A little bit going on. Oh, it starts very much carrot and then all of a sudden the carrot's a, a big baseball bat. But I do think that there are things happening with that and the insurance companies are investing in technology to try and mitigate. Everyone's trying to understand their exposure long-term to climate and climate impact. And everyone's trying to understand what they can do to mitigate that. But there's also a paradox. There's a reason, (laughs) there's a bizarre reason out there. We call it the paradox, the climate paradox in the context of insurance. It costs 5X to build your project with wood than to build with concrete when wood is carbon capturing and concrete is carbon emitting. And the, and the carbon equation relative to the cost of risk equation is not adding up yet either. And so you also have to look at the insurance company's priorities. You would think in today's dynamic that they're very interested in the impact of climate and climate risk, and yet the pricing and the incentive at the front line doesn't align with some of the views at the, t- at the top. And that just is going to take time as these things evolve. And then, of course, insurance companies are conservative because they have to be, they need to be, they need to have the balance sheet and the, and the availability to pay out the losses. And then we also, as everyone gets frustrated around this and we are the targets of, you know, the jokes at every cocktail party, uh, or that recoiled, imagine in your profession, every time you go to shake somebody's hand and you're like, I'm an insurance broker and they pull back from you. It's like the dentist effect, it's job, job dissatisfaction. <laughs> yeah. I'm a dentist or you know, there's a couple of other sort of professions. I joked the other day, like, you know, insurance <laughs> insurance brokerage is like insurance brokerage to financial services, dentistry to medicine, right? Like it's that thing that's frustrating. Not really in financial services. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, that hurts. But we think there's a path through this, right? When the problems become so big, you have to get small to maneuver around them. And that, that was kind of our thinking. Uh, here in Toronto, there's been a few high-profile fires recently from projects that people are speculating might have had issues with profitability. In times like this, is there an insurance fraud increase? Like significant where it actually matter to the, the premiums paid out over the course of the year? I can't speak to any specific circumstance. I'm not aware of any specific circumstance where that's factually proven or even being alleged. I can tell you macro picture, when economic times are challenging, you see all matter of claims increase. Slip and falls at retail complexes are up broadly. When people are hurting, they they go to the channels where they think there's opportunity, uh, whether that's legal or not, becomes secondary. And I think we're in times right now and maybe some prolonged times where that's tricky. So yeah, and the insurers are vigilant about this and I think they're very mindful to not be discriminant to that, but it's all proven in a loss run. 
Unfortunately, we're out of time here, Jeff. So uh, famous last words. This conversation needs to happen more widely. There needs to be more transparency. We're hearing way too many people not knowing who their insurer is, how it works, how the price is determined, what to do about circumstances. Like there's too much noise right now to be healthy. And so, yeah, I think the message is like, get that checked out. How do people find you? The internet is a good spot, kevlrisk.com through referral. We work with a number, ask if folks you know are talking to us, you can find us that way. And yeah, or through you guys, through a referral from First National. We'll put it in the show notes to contact information. Appreciate that. We're going to wrap up here for the regular part um, of the podcast, but given this unusual format, we do have a live uh, audience here. We are going to uh, ask the audience for any insurance-related questions and keep keep the mics rolling for now. So it'll be a little format that maybe people aren't used to, but uh, stick with it. Does anybody here have a burning desire to ask an insurance-related question? And again, repeat the question here just for the audience and the mics too. This is a, a recent deal that one of the First National guys here is working on where they went to all the big insurers in the market and almost every single one declined. And Will's saying that there's no real identifiable reason why they might want to might want to uh, decline it. Yeah, I mean, a couple of comments. One, there's always more color than to what's on the page. So if you're not part of a conversation would encourage you to get involved in the conversation, get color. The word decline doesn't necessarily describe why or for what reason. There's a reason why. When we see things like that, it also tells us something about the asset or the operator. So like maybe there are some things that require some more investigation. What's the material? What's it made of? Where is it located? You know, is it unduly exposed to risk? If every insurance company doesn't want it, what does that tell us? Doesn't mean it's a bad investment from a real estate perspective, but from the capital that bets on loss, it's a bad investment from their perspective. So understanding the nuance ties back to why did they decline? Is it uncommon? Unfortunately, it's more common than we like to see, but I think the problem is, is not having the color. There could be something in here, you know, it could be related to a historical event that took place that hasn't been flushed out or satisfactorily described, or there could be something buried in there. Yeah. And, and having conversation color, tell me why they didn't decline. Like there's a reason they must've all given you a reason. What was the reason for each of them and take me through them. That's something that we would expect as an outcome. There's a question online. Here we go. So, um, Michael Shagda in the past, uh, withdrawal of for-profit insurers for markets, i.e. farmers during the Great Depression, et cetera, led to insurance users creating mutual insurance co's. Would this make sense? For sure. Can you explain what the question means? Sure, yeah. So the, the comment is when, you know, there's been multiple points in history where risk or categories of risk have become such that you can't get insurance. And so what folks will do is form together uh, who are in that industry group or in that industry class. Farmers is a great example. Farmers Mutuals exist all over America, all over Canada. We still have some legacy ones here uh, that operate and are incorporated, but it's effectively a group of people that say, we have the same risk. Let's pool that risk and self-fund an insurance company that addresses exclusively our risk and we work to manage it. One of the things that we've seen is, is a challenge to this. Like we did a bunch of work in the renewable power space in my time, in my career, and it's a highly competitive market where not everybody necessarily wants to share details that they would need to in order for that to work properly to assess price risk in a scheme like that. And so some of the anti-competitive activity, which makes complete sense why you would be concerned about your secret sauce or your operating, you know, expertise or your, you know, your moat to your business. You wouldn't necessarily want to share that with all of your competitors in order to solve this problem. 
cannabis was another area where I think it could have made a ton of sense. No one was really interested in ensuring that in its early stages. And, you know, we might have another crack at it here as the psychedelics uh, start to arrive and maybe that makes sense there. But we've seen that there's a insurance company out there called Factory Mutual, uh, which is effectively FM Global, one of the leading sort of insurance companies that exclusively writes property risk that originally formed as a mutual and, and continues to act as a mutual for its policyholders. One of the things that we do caution, you know, mutuals and commitments to mutuals is that that's a long game. That's a, like, we're here for a long time. Same with captives. It's along the same kind of theme where it's like, this is too much. We're just going to own, we're going to self-insure. We're going to fund a vehicle rather than paying the insurers. We'll pay ourselves and we'll address and capitalize that so that we can address our losses through that vehicle. You got to be committed to the long term because the market could move here and understand how that market is moving to make those types of decisions. But yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw some mutuals. Yeah. Hail, for example, is a huge issue for, you know, for developers of solar, uh, in certain parts of North America and hail risk is really hard to find right now, or hail insurance is really hard to find a mutual for those that are exposed to hail risk X of a certain limit. So hail risk above $20 million is really hard to find. Maybe everybody should be pooling to build a solution for something like that. So that one event solves and keeps the industry moving. And is that a niche solution is a better fit than trying to get all insurers on board for it? Could be. I, our view is spreading risk is better. If you think about Lloyd's, and I'll just two seconds on this, Lloyd's works and has for 400 years because when a ship went down, it wasn't one insurance company that was writing that ship. And that one insurance company was had outsized exposure to that event taking place. Just the same way today, when an earthquake takes place, it's not one insurer in Lloyd's that's taking all that risk. It's spread around a room of, you know, could be 40, 50 people saying, I'll take 2% of this, 2% of this, 2% of this. North American insurance placements, this is what I'm kind of referring to in structure. North American insurance placements don't necessarily look like this. They look like more of the latter where you've got large insurance companies taking outsized swings at risks that if there are losses, they have an outsized loss and hence loss ratios affected that way. We think spreading risk is a good idea. So while a mutual might solve a niche problem in a niche corner where there's a where there's a uniqueness, we think generally spreading risk is a good idea. Globally. Yeah. The Chinese learned it and I think are really the first example of it when they were migrating and exploring. The first few convoys up the river had all the supplies in one boat and when it tipped over, uh, that was a problem. A bunch of people died and they couldn't sort of move to the next colony and or location. And so eventually they learned that spreading the goods across multiple boats to move was more effective. And if they did lose a boat, they didn't lose everything. The classic eggs in one basket. Correct. Don't trip. One more question from Russ out in Vancouver. Is there a potential role for government in reinsurance? Yes. So Canada, interestingly, doesn't have a scheme that addresses cat risk effectively. And if you look at the UK, they've got Pool Re that addresses terrorism. In the United States, you have TRIA and FEMA and these other schemes that attach small portions to every policy that's issued, almost like a tax, but it effectively acts as a mutual or a pool to respond to catastrophic event. And I think that that is something that we could use in Canada. I think we could use tax dollars far more effectively by opening up the private markets to ensuring catastrophic risk, right? There, there would actually be good spread of risk for certain groups if uh, they could take on sort of true reinsurance to catastrophic government risk, right? So I'll give you the example if Alberta had a scheme or if Ontario had a scheme for flood risk where the taxpayer dollars 
rather than being aggregated from dollar one, we're investing in catastrophic bonds or in other types of reinsurance solutions to respond to these cat events, we could probably limit the amount of taxpayer dollar put to recovering from uh, certain events. And we could be utilizing of the capital markets and fueling profitability in some respects. Do we think that this is being talked about enough? No. Do we think that there needs to be more attention towards it? Yes. Are there other priorities at the moment? It feels like it. For the countries that do partake, is it profitable? To my understanding, yeah. They continue to occur. I don't have the details on profitability of FEMA in the in the US. The terrorism schemes seem to be quite smart. And they're already in the business of insuring mortgages, the concept's not foreign, that you'd have government-run insurance companies. Sure, and you have a you have a private market for insuring the, the mortgages too, and the two sometimes work hand in hand. Yeah, they, and and they could be collaborating, right? Where, again, this comes down to structuring and who's advising on the structuring. All right, we're calling it here. It's going to get better from here on out. Perfect. Thanks everybody for listening to the end of the uh, episode. Of course, I want to thank First National for uh, powering the podcast. But most of all, to our guest, thanks for joining us again. I look forward to seeing you in the future. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate it. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.